Hi, I'm John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the Public Policy This Week podcast. If you like what you hear on this show, please consider leaving us a review or telling a friend about us. Also, please consider subscribing so you'll receive a brand new edition of the show every time we make one available. We hope you find Public Policy This Week entertaining and informative, and thanks again for listening. Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It is Friday, December 2nd, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the honest and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week we take a look at a specific policy subject, and we have guests on the show that are experts in their fields. I'm Joe Moravchik, and partnering with me today is Rich Larson, News Director at KYMN Radio. And for those of you who do not know, Joe Moravchik is a retired police officer and a, a longtime coach and administrator of athletic teams. Joe also happens to be a trained lawyer, and he has taught college courses as well, including criminal justice. Today on Public Policy This Week, we have two guests joining us in the studio to discuss mental health, specifically mental health challenges in our society, county mental health services, city police coordination with county mental health services, and first responder mental health care. And we are very fortunate uh, to be joined by two people who really know their stuff when it comes to issues like this. First, we have Dante Hummel-Langerfeld with us. Dante is a licensed independent clinical social worker and licensed alcohol and drug counselor. She spent the first 15 years of her career focused on hospital-based social work and substance use disorder treatment uh, with both uh, the Mayo Clinic Fountain Centers and also with the uh, Cheyenne Regional Medical Center. Much of her time and effort has been focused on improving service access and quality of services for individuals and families that struggle with substance use uh, within Rice County. In, in addition to Dante's employment through Fountain Center, she has participated in the development and implementation of Rice County Treatment Court, the Mobile Opioid Support Team, or MOST, and the Family Recover Support Program. In February 2022, Dante took the role of supervising the newly formed Behavioral Health Services with Rice County, and this includes overseeing community-based coordinators, chemical health social work, and treatment court coordinators. My goodness, Dante, you are a busy person. <laughs> Dante graduated from Faribault High School, obtained her undergraduate degree in social work at Mankato State University, and her graduate degree in social work from the University of Denver. Dante has spent most of her life in Rice County and raises her family here. Also with us today is guest Mark Elliott. Mark has over 31 years of experience in law enforcement and is the chief of police for the city of Northfield Police Department. Prior to his time in Northfield, he was the chief of police in Prior Lake for four years. And before that, Mark had 22 years with the Bloomington Police Department, serving in a variety of positions in patrol and in investigative capacities, rising to the rank of commander. Mark has a BS in criminal justice and an MA in organizational leadership from St. Mary's University. He's a graduate of the International Association of Chiefs of Police Leadership in Police Organizations course and Northwestern University School of Police Staff and Command. Mark has served on many regional and state-level boards and working groups focused on law enforcement and public employee matters. He has testifi testified before the Minnesota State Legislature several times as a subject matter expert on law, law enforcement topics. Mark has two daughters, a son in college. He has many years of experience coaching and officiating youth athletics and serving in volunteer and board positions in youth sports and youth 
service organizations. Dante, welcome to Public Policy This Week. Thanks for having us. And Chief, welcome to you as well. Let's get into it. Yeah. Uh, Dante, clarify some of your experience for our listeners. First, what is the mobile opioid support team? Second, what is the family recovery support program? And then what is the Rice County Treatment Court? And then lastly, please tell us about community-based coordination program, if you would. Sure, absolutely. So the mobile opioid support team, or MOST, is a Rice County... Um, service program team um, that was implemented a few years ago. And this is for individuals who either currently use opioids or are in recovery from opioid use. And it is a team of people who are able to surround the individual and offer support services as needed, as, as little or as much as the person is asking for, and helps connect people to community resources. The Family Recovery Support Program is similar in the same sense that it's a wraparound program that meets people where they are, offers services as needed, really driven by the client. And um, again, Rice County Program, and that is for individuals who are a parent with a substance use disorder, either active or in recovery as well. Rice County Treatment Court um, was implemented in 2014, and what that is is an 18 to 24 month program um, where an individual, instead of um, looking at a prison sentence, can enter into this program. And it's high or intense monitoring through the court services. There is a team of, of people that serve those clients as well from probation, social work, treatment um, providers, therapists, attorneys, law enforcement, judges. Um, so really a large group of people that, again, help support someone through their recovery process. Mm. And lastly, the community-based coordinator program. I throw a lot at you right <laughs> away. No, that's great. It's great. Um, it's it's pretty new and exciting. Um, officially launched in June of this year. Prior to our official launch, we did have Project Intercept, which was um, we have a social worker within our Rice County Jail that helps with um, treatment placement, discharge planning, and that has gone wonderful. So the idea or the goal is to how do we take that same service and move it upstream to help individuals before they get to jail. Um, and so that is our community-based coordinators. We have three of them. One is embedded within Northfield Police Department. One is embedded within Faribault Police Department. And then one with the Rice County Sheriff's Office. And um, this team of people, they can respond to situations. It can be calls or referrals for individuals who are experiencing mental health or chemical health crisis that are coming in contact with law enforcement for one way or, or reason or another. And again, just offer the, the services that are needed for that individual. What are the gaps that are occurring in their lives and how do we help fill that? Um, one, two, just in general support individuals, families, and the community, but also to prevent people from becoming justice involved when whatever's happening, the behavior that's happening is driven by chemical health or mental health issues. Mm. Okay. Um, I want to ask this question of both of you, but uh, probably I'll direct it to Mark first. Mm. Um, 
what is Travis's law? Um, when was it put in place? Why was it put in place in Minnesota? And how effective has the legislation been, sir? Um, well, the law was named after Travis Jordan, a Minneapolis man who was killed by Minneapolis police after a call to 911 about his behavior and suicidal statements that he had made. Um, and the law was enacted by the legislature in 2021, mm -hmm. and it changed the language in Minnesota Statute 403 that covers emergency response services. And prior to that, the language addressed services available through a 911 system by stating 911 system may include a referral to mental health crisis teams where available. And the change was just a few words, but it changed to the 911 system shall include a referral to a mental health crisis team when appropriate. Um, so it went from a, this is a service that could be provided to mandating that it's provided. Uh, now, the logic behind the change is well-intentioned and really should provide more holistic service for folks in crisis. But at the time it was enacted, there were only a handful of counties mm -hmm. in the state that had 24-hour mental health crisis response sure. uh, teams. And some of those teams even that were uh, throughout the state were covering, like one that we contract with, were covering 10 counties right. throughout south-central Minnesota. Wow. So I immediate crisis response when you're covering 10 counties isn't really immediate right um if i can interject that that team as i understand it is based in mankato right it is horizon yeah. homes yeah. and we'll talk yeah. about them yep. a little more yep. um i'm sure today too um again filling a need but not quite with what the legislature intended like other bills that sometimes the legislature <laughs> passes um so it was really an unfunded mandate to communities and counties throughout the state. And the bill that passed, it did include some additional dollars in the second year of the bill, mm -hmm. about an additional $5 million, but that's for the entire state. And we're talking about statewide support for a 24-7 response. Uh, that really doesn't go very far. Thankfully, Rice County stepped up, and they really tried to address this about as quickly as they could. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking legislation passed in 21 and in 22 mid-year, we we've got a program running. So we were very thankful for that. And we'll talk a little more in detail um, about some of the aspects of that program, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah, in fact, I'm going to ask about that right away. Um, as, as I understand it, I mean, this isn't a, the program isn't a new idea. It's just new to Rice County. Um, so, Dante, can you give us an idea then of the what it is you, you folks are doing or you're, the people you supervise are doing, um, what kind of calls are the uh, community-based coordinators responding to? Um, are the calls that an officer will respond to? And Well, I mean, calls that an officer will respond to and then ask uh, CBC for help or the calls that the CBC is sent to without police? Um, how does this all work? How's sure. That? Yeah, great question. Um, so high-level overview is really any call that would include someone who is struggling with either a mental health issue or a chemical health issue, mm -hmm. a CBC would be appropriate for. And and it's really done in two ways. It absolutely could be a co-response model in which an officer um, either knows really upfront, hey, where I'm going, this individual probably could use some help they can call or, you know, walk down the hall and talk to the CBC and say, hey, this is where we're going. We want to meet us there. That's absolutely um, a great 
way to handle that. It also could be that the officer gets on site and then goes, oh, geez, there's something else going on here. And then they call their CBC and the CBC can go out. The third route really is um, also a referral system. So our CBCs currently are not 24 hours a day. And so obviously a lot happens outside of the time that they're working. And so the officers, um, we've set up a pretty great system where they can just put it right on their report, refer to the CBC the next morning. The CBC is going to come into those reports and then follow up. And so um, in situations like that, our CBCs are going out with law enforcement. Um, It's not obviously an active scene. Safety is always our first priority for staff as well as the community. Um, And so we really look at our law enforcement partners to determine whether or not a scene is safe for us to be there. Um, We also know that we are not trained law enforcement officers. And so we we know there are certain situations that it's not helpful for us necessarily to be there. So we let them guide and lead us in that. Um, And when the referrals come to us, we know that it's okay for us to go ahead and follow up with those without law enforcement with us. Safety was actually my next question. Um, just the idea of sending a social worker out to a, a call. Is it safe? I, Mark, what are your, what are your thoughts on, uh, on, on the whole idea there? Um, well, the short answer to have CBCs refer or respond directly without knowledge of what's going on. No, it's yeah. not safe. Um, <laughs> because there are just so many variables and it can be unpredictable. Right. Um, but it, the longer answer is it really depends. And I, that's something we talk about, talked about before the program started. And it really is a collaboration or partnership on that. What do we know, what do we know about maybe responding to this person or this address in the past? What is the nature of the call coming in? Is it a disturbance? Is it someone needs follow-up? They didn't show up for an appointment. Yeah. Um, I was just on the phone with them, and they sound kind of depressed. They said they'd talk to someone, but they don't want to leave the house. I mean, different circumstances mm-hmm. can guide that. Mm-hmm. And that's where that co-response model, a lot of times we'll go out together yeah. or we'll respond. We discover what it is and then call the CBC to come to the scene Mm -hmm. Um, or it may be that it's stable and we feel that they could respond tomorrow and there's not a safety concern and they can respond on their own so it really varies on there safety is our priority though we want to make sure that our cbcs are comfortable and in going out there and dante you were telling me that the cbcs do not arrive on the scene in a squad car with with the police is that right correct yes so um we really tried to be intentional about the program as a whole. And, and one of the things we discussed a lot is that when someone's in crisis, um, oftentimes having people in uniform can be intimidating or scary mm-hmm. as well. And so although the individuals we're serving, they know that we partner with law enforcement um, and that we're working together, we are not law enforcement officers. And so that is one of the pieces that we talked about was arriving um, in separate vehicles just to kind of create that distinction about our different roles Mm -hmm. and our different responsibilities and what we can provide Um, as well as the second piece of that is that if uh, you know if the situation is safe and this is going to take a while and it's you know it's going to be a few hours then our uh, law enforcement partners can move on and continue to do their job and not be stuck there because we rode with them. Right, right. Well, that's um, oh, yeah, that's a good point. Actually, I never even thought about that. Uh, Chief, in your estimation, we're a little more a little more than six months into this program now. Um, 
how's it going? What kind of success are you seeing? How are your people uh, uh, responding to the idea? Um, how's the general public responding to the idea? Are there any obstacles you still have to overcome? Yeah, I'm going to dial back your question a little bit to just three months because oh, we're, oh, we said we're not quite to our six-month point, so I don't have any stats on there. Oh. And I, as you know, I like to share yes, some stats. You, yeah, you shared some with me before, yes. Um, but in the first three months, we had 42 referrals to the CBCs here in Northfield. And of those, 23, or 55%, agreed to ongoing support from the CBC. Okay. Um, with what we see there, most of that is in stabilization, so the folks maybe aren't in crisis or we deal with them in crisis, but then they need stabilization after that okay. um, so that they can maintain and maybe sure. not become in crisis again. <laughs> um, and those folks, uh, they're receiving the services they need. Um, and a lot of times that services they weren't receiving before. Right. Um, there was a gap there in um, what is available to them, but what they were able to connect with. Mm -hmm. um, so the results for us is that officers are called back fewer times. Um, I know we had one of uh, the folks that we've worked with that we, just about the time the program was starting, we had dealt with them on seven calls in about four days. Um, wow. And we were able to connect them with CBC. We had one call that next week, but we haven't been back there. Um, so they nice. started receiving their ongoing care that they needed in order to be stabilized and be able to live on their own in the community and carry on their day-to-day -day without those services. But with before that, when those weren't available, there just really wasn't, they were falling through the gaps in the different support systems mm -hmm. throughout the community and the county, um, and they needed some help. So the result was a better quality of life yeah. uh, for them. And we see that across the community generally has been accepting to us, but not always. Yeah. And some of that is not accepting the services that they're offering. Mm -hmm. Um, but also some of it is, um, I, I, I'm speculating on this, but maybe just some, well, you're working with the police. So mm -hmm. is this a police program? Right. I think once they start working mm -hmm. with the community based coordinators mm -hmm. that, fear quickly goes away but it's getting them to agree because we can't force them to do this right um but getting them to agree um for that help is is i think probably one of the bigger obstacles that we see um probably our biggest obstacle though that we're seeing is our response is limited to 40 hours a week Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. There's 168 hours in a week. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you see the gap that yeah. is created mm -hmm. in there. Um, but as we talked about, they do follow up mm -hmm. on there and mm -hmm. our follow-ups tend to be pretty well received. Mm -hmm. I don't see that there's a difference between, uh, attempting to make contact and people willing to take or not take services after the fact versus right at that time. Okay. Um, and we do have other services available. We do have the 24 hour mental health mm -hmm. response that mm -hmm. we can still go through horizon homes for. So it's not like outside of that time, there's no resources available. It's just not quite the same. Mm -hmm. Dante, from your side, how are, um, how are your, the people that you're overseeing, how are they responding to this? How, what are their thoughts on how everything is going? Yeah. Um, so really, it's been very exciting for us. We have um, a pretty solid team of individuals that come with a variety of backgrounds um, and some pretty significant time within um, the social services, social work type field as well um, as a law enforcement background. 
And they have been um, really excited about how open individuals have been to working with us. Mm-hmm. Um, Chief shared some of the, the Northfield numbers. The, the Rice County numbers for the first three months was 153 referrals, and 120 of those individuals agreed to work with us ongoing. That's we were not expecting to see this kind of number, yeah. um, sp- specifically because when you're in crisis, that's hard. Yeah. Um, and so for people to say yes in those moments is pretty incredible. And what I mean by ongoing is it might be a one-time service. They just need to be connected to the right place or people at the right time, but some of it is ongoing. And so our CBCs are are a short-term intervention that helps bridge or fill that gap to the long-term services. And so whether that's one week or six months, they can continue. We don't have a time limit, um, but they can continue to help support that person to getting to that place of stabilization. Um, And so overall, our team has just been really excited about how many yeses we're receiving, oh, um, as well as the the agencies that have been willing to partner us, partner with us differently, because this is a little bit quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, most agencies, the referral process can just take so long um, for various reasons, and we have been really lucky that other agencies within our community have said yes. Let's try to do this differently and get these folks' services a little bit quicker. Chief used the phrase "better quality of life." I mean, mm-hmm. in, in in and of itself, though, that the fact that you're using those four words that's a that's a success story right there. Um, all right, now I'm going to use the F word uh, and ask you guys about <laughs> funding. <laughs> yep. I, I, I am going to guess, just Dante, I'm going to say mm-hmm. a wild guess that there probably isn't enough money uh, coming from the state for this uh, program. I don't even know if there's any. Um, what how how would you advise the legislature if they were to ask you um, what should be done for a program like this? Yeah, um, great question. So here in Rice County, the coordin- uh, community-based coordinator program is funded by the county. Um, so that's where our financial support is coming from. My kind of my my sell on this is that a program like this is never going to be revenue producing where we're going to see if we want to look at at costs where we're going to see it is in cost savings mm-hmm. um, it's it's connecting people to services earlier in their need process that will result in in gains and saves within the community for individuals families cities counties state um, we're looking at at less use of jails and hospitals um, law enforcement, just all of those resources that go into it. And, and truly, if we, if we want to increase quality of life, as well as considering how do we financially save money or help communities, we have to look at how we do things differently than we've always done them. Mm-hmm. And programs like this are what's offering us the ability to to address people's needs and serve people differently than we have done before. And we're already seeing the success of that. That's great. So to the state legislators, <laughs> write a check. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's take a quick station break. You're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, 
AM 1080 and FM 95.1. We're broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Joe Moravchik, and alongside is my co-host, Rich Larson. We're talking with Dante Hummel-Langerfeld and Mark Elliott about mental health, mental health challenges in our society, county mental health services, city police coordination with county mental health services, and first responder mental health care. Chief Elliott. In our first segment of the program, Dante discussed her role with the mobile opioid support team. When I was on the street, crack cocaine, heroin, and prescription opioid medication abuse were our primary problems. Then later, then later was methamphetamine. I've read multiple articles recently about fentanyl, 50 times more lethal than heroin, 100 times more lethal than morphine. In 2021, about 82,000 Americans died from opioid-related overdose deaths, and fentanyl was identified in over 75% of adolescent overdose deaths. The articles I read were largely about teenagers dying from fentanyl supplied by other teenagers, accidental deaths. How big a problem is fentanyl? Are your officers trained in, and do they carry naloxone, commonly called Narcan, for overdose emergencies? What is the benefit of being trained in this type of medical assistance? Yeah, well, you're right, Joe. We uh, we certainly struggle with um, addiction, with overdoses in our community, just like every community does. And uh, we're pretty proactive here in Northfield, having a program like the MOST program, yeah. um, the Family Recovery Program. Those all help bring awareness to the issue to the broader community. Um, so our officers do carry Narcan with them. Um, but more broadly, through the MOST program and some of the expansion that we've done through Rice County Chemical and Mental Health, we have Narcan distribution points throughout the community where folks can go and get free Narcan. So it's not just the officers, but we have distributed hundreds of uh doses of Narcan throughout our community, so it's more readily available to address um, overdoses. Fentanyl, fentanyl is really dangerous. Um, And as far as prevalence compared to other illegal drugs, it's not necessarily more prevalent. We're still, when we look at our seizures for a drug task force locally, that type of thing, meth continues to be the number one thing that we're seeing. But people don't die from meth overdoses like they do from overdoses from fentanyl. Right. Um, because of the way it reacts on your body. Fentanyl stops you from breathing yeah. if you have an overdose. Meth causes you to behave really badly and be disruptive to other people, drawing attention to yourself yeah. versus just stopping breathing and quietly passing away from fentanyl. So we see different reactions, different types of drugs. So we see a different uh, way it's reported out in the community because deaths obviously grab headlines. Mm -hmm. So we hear about that more. Now what we're seeing most recently, especially in the past two years now, is uh, drug manufacturers and dealers cutting fentanyl into meth. So we're getting combinations of those. And you have folks that think they're buying meth, but there's fentanyl in it, and that's unexpected to them. I, I do not understand that. I just, I'm just sorry to interject, but why are they doing that? Well, I'm, I'm not a drug dealer, and right. I didn't go to school for this and study it, but my guess is fentanyl is highly addictive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh. And if they can get their drug users 
to be more addicted, that is going to continue to create money for them. Now, the challenge is to create that mixture just enough that they're addicted, but they don't die right. because dead clients don't buy more. Right. So it, it's risky, but drug networks kind of operate in risk yeah. a lot. So, yeah, well, um, I suppose. You know, the we're really, really thankful as a <laughs> police department and law enforcement throughout Rice County on our partnership with our partners um, through Rice County Social Services, uh, the Community Action Council, uh, Healthy Community Initiative. They have been the drivers and have really pushed the need for additional support um, for substance use disorders. Health Finders, Alina, Northfield Hospital and Clinics all have jumped on board and are um, really pushing forward both treatment aspects as well as prevention aspects in our community. So that, that gets back to what Dante was saying is that, that there's community support all over the place for this. Yes. That is fantastic. Dante, in your experience, how common is it for someone that has an opioid use issue or disorder to also have a coexisting mental health condition such as depression or anxiety? Is it true that in some cases a person can develop mental health issues due to an opioid use disorder? And in contrast, a person can develop an opioid use disorder to cope with symptoms of a mental illness. And what about non-opioid intoxicants like cannabinoids or alcohol? Do you see a connection with those drugs and mental health issues? Yes, absolutely. So um, really, regardless of what substance or chemical we're looking at, co-occurring disorders is extremely common. Um, it's, it's always kind of the discussion of the chicken or the egg, which yeah. came first. And mm -hmm. for each individual, that's going to be very different. Um, but we do see, you know, even statistically speaking, that if an individual has a pre-existing mental health condition, they are much more likely to experience substance use disorder. Um, and that is related to something that you commented on is, is, unfortunately sub you know chemicals or substances are pretty good at making you not feel what you don't want to feel at least temporarily um, which leads to that cycle or that spiral of addiction and on the other side of things an individual could start using chemicals not having a pre-existing mental health condition um, but what we know about mood altering chemicals is it changes the makeup or the chemistry in the brain and when it does that it's it's changing um, the levels of where the, chem the chemicals are supposed to, your natural chemicals in your mm -hmm. brain are supposed mm -hmm. to be. Mm -hmm. And when it alters that, it can result in mental health conditions, mm -hmm. symptoms or diagnosable um, disorders. And that is something, too, that we need to differentiate between is that an individual who has a substance use disorder, they almost always are going to experience a mental health symptom. Um, particularly around the time of withdrawal. And because they're experiencing the symptom doesn't necessarily mean that they have a diagnosable disorder, um, but that it is common for almost all people suffering from substance use disorder to also experience mental health symptoms. Hmm. Chief, you're not a drug dealer, I'm not a cop, <laughs> but I, I have, as I understand it, uh, police are rarely actually called for a good reason. Other other law enforcement people have told me this. Now, you often have to respond to calls where people are at their worst, right? Uh, they're experiencing something traumatic or they're experiencing something that's life-threatening, mental health crises. 
how prevalent in your experience are the number of mental health calls that the police department has to respond to? What are the co- and what are the common examples of what the mental health calls that you guys respond to are? Yeah, Rich, well, I would say it's a high percentage. Um, now, it may be a crisis call, like a suicidal threat or ideation, uh, but it also could be calls such as welfare checks because someone has withdrawn from their friends, mm-hmm. their family, or their work. Um, but also threat calls or assaults where someone has mental health challenges and it manifests into violence. Uh, some of these are ongoing mental health issues, um, but they can be temporary as well. Uh, road rage is an example of a temporary mental health issue yeah. uh, where someone just snaps, yeah. can't control their emotions. So I think it's fair to say that a majority of police calls involve a nexus to mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. In preparing for today's show, I read that mental health includes our emotional, psychological, and social well-being. It affects how we think, feel, and act. And our mental health also helps determine how we handle stress, relate to others, make decisions. Further, I read that 1 in 25 Americans live with a serious mental illness, such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or major depression. Many more with issues like anxiety. And and statistically, better than 50% of us will be diagnosed with a mental illness at some point during our lifetime. Lastly, in the course of a lifetime, not all people will experience a mental illness, but everyone will struggle or have a challenge with their mental well-being, just like at some point we'll have challenges with our physical health. Dante, you're a mental health professional. Based on my reading, most, if not all of us, experience mental health illness or mental health type illness at some point or are touched by it, yet it doesn't appear mental health care gets the respect it deserves is there still a stigma associated with coming forward with a mental health problem? If so, do many per- people then not come forward when they really could be helped by a mental health professional? Yes. Um, it has, I think, slowly been getting better as far as general acceptance of mental health um, concerns, illnesses, symptoms, and the resources around. Um, however, it's still hard. There is still embarrassment or shame surrounded by whether it's yourself or a family member. Um, so the answer is yes and. Yep. Um, I think, and, and there's there's pieces of it too, and especially being more in southern Minnesota, we do have more limited resources. So there is that piece that someone, you know, finally is able to ask for help, and then we're not able to always respond with immediate services, and that can be intimidating or frustrating. Um Also, sometimes it can be difficult to identify it within ourselves that we're struggling with something. Sometimes it's the people around us who are going to see it first, and those are difficult conversations to have. Um, So, yes, absolutely, it is difficult. And I do think that in general, our communities, society, families, individuals are becoming more comfortable with the discussion and the topics surrounding mental health. Let me just... I want to pull out one piece of what that long question I asked you. <laughs> it said, in the, just from my reading, in the course of a lifetime, not all people will experience a mental illness, but everyone will struggle or have a challenge with their mental well-being at mm-hmm. some point in their life. In your experience, is that true? All of us are going to have what sometimes a minor type situation. We just work ourselves through. Yeah, well, absolutely. There's a much longer situation, but in your experience, yes? Yeah, absolutely. Um you know, life gets hard sometimes, yep. and mm-hmm. and that is absolutely associated with our mental well-being or our emotional well-being, and so that is 
absolutely, um, you know, I try not to use the words normal, but I'm going to use that in this situation. Mm -hmm. It is normal. It is expected that every single one of us will struggle with mental well-being at one point or another. That is to be human. Um, and, and that might even happen, you know, throughout the course of a day. Everybody right. experiences some right. sort of, you know, whether it's nervousness or anxiety or it's, it's really the harder stuff that we're dealing with grief and loss in, in our life or um, significant unexpected life changes or, um, you know, COVID, things like yeah. that. Everybody yeah. struggles at some point or another. Absolutely. Society is, I would like to think, coming around a little bit. The stigma will be there, uh, but I, I would like to think that that stigma is not quite what it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. Agreed. Yeah. This whole conversation um, has me kind of thinking about the role of uh, police in society. Uh, Mark, you and I talked last week, and you really explained to me um, how... You know, in the late 70s, uh, when they started closing down um, uh, state hospitals, uh, they were, a lot of people were, were being sent out into the community without a lot of resources to, for, for, for the help they needed. And, you know, the police stepped up. And uh, that seems to me to be a fairly common thing across the country. Um, we ask more and more of the police, even while we're putting them under more and more of a microscope. Um, and, and I'll ask all three of you, Joe included, um, and Dante, you as a, as a close observer, do you think the public has a good understanding of an appreciation for, oh boy, this is a loaded question, for the <laughs> role of the police in our society? <coughs> And we've only got 20 minutes left yeah. of the show. So. <laughs> I'll, I'll be somewhat brief here. Um, well, most of what society in general understands about police, they get from TV shows and movies. Mm -hmm. That's a good uh, point. It involves action, a storyline that grabs attention, um, and, well, it makes money for Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Further understanding comes from the media and what stories they choose to report on, which, again, are often profit-driven uh, and attention-getting. That's how they sell ad time on, right. Right. on news shows. Um, and then the third area is through personal contact. Uh, last year, a public opinion poll showed that 86% of people trusted police in their community mm. to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And another poll, 69% felt that police are needed to address rising crime rates. Now, these show that in general, folks support having police in their community and see a need for that for them in our society. But as for what the officers do, I yeah. think many are limited in their understanding. We do a lot of social work and customer service, yeah. uh, connecting folks with resources that they need. The enforcement side of our public safety uh, part that we do, we write tickets, we arrest some folks to enforce society's laws. But while TV shows would make you think that we do that seven out of eight hours a day, uh, the real reality is closer to the opposite where it's a small part of our day that we're yeah. actually involved in enforcement duties. Um, it's really a lot more um, intervention and social work and connecting folks with what the, what they need. Right. Joe, I asked you this question last week, and you just kind of looked at me and went, no. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I, one of the things that the chief just brought up was how important those contacts with people are. Um, 
just that impression you make as a police officer. Mm-hmm. Remember, police officers are our most visible representatives of our communities. So you want those contacts, those first contacts, to be positive in as many cases as you can. I was thinking about this question last night. In my youth, the only contact I had with a police officer was a police officer came to chase us away mm-hmm. from a street hockey game. You know, get out of the street. Yeah. But he was rude to us. I mean, he took our names. He threatened us with you know, <laughs> um, some type of violation about being in the street. And it was a negative contact for ki- young, impressionable kids that were just out playing street hockey. Mm-hmm. And later, when I become a police officer, I knew the value of those contacts. And in my trunk, I kept a football. And I also kept books, the same books I would read to my children. And the football was for, all right, those kids in the street are out playing. Let me get out there and throw some passes to these kids just to make that connection. And the books were for the more traumatic events. You know, you go to these mm-hmm. scenarios where kids witness things that no child should ever see. Right. So why not read them Good Night Moon or whatever else at the end of that call just to try and bring that connection between the the police and this young child has just had a traumatic experience. But where I work, we were a full service department. Um, if somebody had a stolen bike, we were going to it. I remember going to a medical call with rescue where a squirrel had bitten a woman, mm-hmm. crawled through her window and bit her while she was doing the dishes. So, we, you know, you go to stuff like that. But then you go to all the medical calls, you go to the homeless shelters, you have this community outreach programs where you get into community centers to meet people traffic accidents, burglaries, homicides, all that. It was literally the cat in the tree of the homicide. We went to all that. And I think people don't understand that, as the chief was pointing out as well. Because of what they see on TV, the police are always on TV responding with their emergency lights and siren. 99% of calls, more than 99% of calls, the police are going without that emergency equipment on. And as the chief pointed out, it's a lot of customer service type mm-hmm. stuff, social mm-hmm. work stuff. And I love this discussion between you two about the partnership you've developed. I mean, we started a this type of program in 1998. Two veteran women from social services brought this program to us, varying degrees of success. You know, some officers weren't ready for it yet. It turned out to be a wonderful program. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm just because of their experience and knowledge and what they could bring to calls and the follow-up aspect of it Mm -hmm. was phenomenal. But I guess things are a lot different now. I'm not sure departments like where I worked at, it was the third largest in Wisconsin, has the personnel coverage to be a full-service department anymore. Um, Our numbers were probably cut down by 30 or 40% in the last two years. But I think maybe there's also this philosophy of what, changing as well as what the police are supposed to be doing in cities so a lot of interesting challenging things i we could go on for well uh just i want to warn everybody who's sitting in their car waiting for the show to be done at 11 o'clock we're going overtime today (laughs) (laughs) that's we've got a lot yet to talk about dante uh dante you you are a trained uh social worker and a trained mental health uh, professional but you see you're not a, you're not law enforcement, but you see it up close. Mm-hmm. What do you, what do you think? I mean, mm-hmm. where and where are we as a society with police? What do you think? You know, I would agree with both of these gentlemen. I think that there is um, oftentimes a misconception about what what policing or law enforcement is. Um, I I agree that a lot of what they do is social work. 
type work. Mm -hmm. And my hope or my goal with these type of programs, these community-based coordinators, are that we are able to create these partnerships where law enforcement gets to be the experts in what they're trained in and the community-based coordinators get to be the experts in what they're trained in and it relieves some of that pressure off of law enforcement. Um, there's a saying within the recovery community even that I can't be all things to all people. And I do f personally believe that we've started looking at law enforcement to be that, all mm. things yeah. to all people. It's what it sounds um, like to me too. And, and when that happens, it's it's really an unreal ex unrealistic expectation that we hold of, of a person or a department or, you know, a field of people. Mm -hmm. um, so hopefully as we move forward in, in these type of programs get established more as the regular occurrence rather than the gem, um, it'll allow law enforcement to kind of focus on what they're best at. Okay. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio in beautiful downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Rich Larson alongside Joe Moravchik, and we're talking with Northfield Chief of Police Mark Elliott and Rice County Behavioral Health Services Unit Supervisor Dante Hummel-Langerfeld about mental health, mental health challenges in our society, county mental health services, city police coordination with county mental health services, and first responder mental health care. I don't know why I thought we could cram this into one show. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, we, we're going we're gonna to go a little long on this show, Joe. Chief Elliott, post-traumatic stress disorder is a mental health condition that is triggered by a terrifying event. Either experiencing it or witnessing it, Symptoms can include flashbacks, nightmares, severe anxiety. First responders frequently experience traumatic events, shootings and stabbings, fatal accidents, abused children, to name a few. Yet police departments traditionally have stayed away from providing counseling programs led by mental health professionals to help officers cope with traumatic experiences that they literally experience on a daily basis. There is now momentum to help police officers and other first responders as someone who is at the top of a police organization, do you believe that mental health counseling is important to provide for officers? And as chief of police, have you implemented or carried on mental health support programs for your officers? Well, Joel, thankfully we've, we've evolved and absolutely <laughs> it's important uh, for mental health counseling and training on healthy coping strategies uh, for our officers. And actually a lot of the training that the officers get on recognizing crisis and mental health issues for people they serve helps them recognize it in themselves and in their coworkers. Mm. Um, so that has been very helpful as well. In Northfield, we do have annual mental health check-ins uh, for officers, and they go to additional follow-up appointments if needed or desired. They receive training on healthy coping strategies for themselves on a variety of wellness topics. As I frequently say, a well police officer takes care of their community well. So that's my goal as chief, is to provide for the officers so that they have healthy coping mechanisms for the stress that they see, um, for their mental health challenges, so that they can come to work every day and go out and serve their community well. That's a great line. That's, that's a really good line. Um, wasn't always like that, <laughs> was no, it? You and no, I, it wasn't. You and I, can, we can date ourselves a little bit. You probably started maybe late 80s, early 90s. I was more mid-90s, but... Um, I was in patrol. I was in specialized divisions like major crimes. I know like my colleagues, I saw things during my career that human beings are probably not programmed to see. I remember a particular 
let's call it a vascular event <laughs> that I had to work. That's just ominous. <laughs> uh, this particular event required a trip back to the department to change uniforms. On the way to the locker room, I just bumped into my ship commander. He didn't ask what I had gotten into or if I was okay. He simply just said, get that uniform changed and get back out on the road. For a long time, there was no mental health treatment for first responders. There wasn't any available, and no officer would have come forward to ask for mental health counseling. You've been in law enforcement for three decades. Was there a stigma for a long time about reporting a mental health problem? Has this changed for the better today? Well, Joe, as you're aware, in the past, law enforcement just told their officers to get over it, pack it away, don't deal with it. And it really is similar to the rest of society where we just didn't talk about mental health. It was taboo. Uh, you know, the gossip about Aunt Janie's son that lives in the basement and nobody right. really talks to him. You know, So there were some similarities, I think, from society to policing there. Yeah. Um, but for officers, it ended up a lot of them had unhealthy coping mechanisms. A lot had untreated depression, unhealthy eating and exercise habits, which led to alcoholism, heart disease, and in some cases, suicide. In the past, there was a concern from officers of reporting mental health problems meant they took away your badge and gun and you were out of a job. Um, We have evolved. Uh, PTSD specifically is highly treatable for most people with it. Um, and you can get PTSD treatment and continue to serve. Uh, in fact, the Minnesota Chiefs of Police Association has been championing legislation requiring employers, so police departments and cities, counties, um, to provide up to 32 weeks of paid time for PTSD treatment. Mm-hmm. We understand that treatment can help the officer work through it and return to work and their life in a better spot. And other types of mental health are also highly treatable with regular care. Mm-hmm. We want officers to have resources available to deal with the traumatic nature of the job, of the work they do. And unfortunately, officers see just how poorly some people in society treat others, and it can leave lasting scars. You know, I, I don't remember hearing even people talk about the fact that being a first responder is a hard job. I don't remember that even coming up until 9-11, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, and I was, you know, I was 32 <laughs> at that point. I mean, this is, it feels like it's a, a fairly recent uh, conversation that, that's even picked up. Um, Dante, first responders, they're obviously, they're not immune to the, the mental health issues of greater society. Um, Due to the stressors of these careers, first responders can be associated with increased risk of serious mental health. Just what we were talking about, mental health issues including homelessness, anxiety, depression, the aforementioned uh, post-traumatic stress, even suicidal behaviors. Mm -hmm. Um, Many first responders cope well enough with the uh, the stressors of the job, uh, but others don't. Uh, Every individual processes everything differently. Um, What do you think? What What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The term that we use for this is vicarious trauma. And what really that means is that when you witness or you hear about another person's traumatic event, you take part of that on because you are a human being. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially people within these fields go into these fields because they care about people. So when you care about people and you you witness um, or listen to these stories, it, it just has an impact on the individual. 
Um, what I do feel like in general is that this conversation has come to the table um, in a different way as it's been talked about a couple of times here. Um, and there are several different ways that this is being addressed within agencies or fields. Um, oftentimes there's situations that occur that require what we call as a debrief, and that might be within the agency. We have that um, interagency across the county as well, depending on the situation. We have some peer support type models where there's individuals within the departments that are um, specifically trained on how to help an individual through a difficult situation. Um, there's also employee assistance programs where the individual then can seek that support outside of their organization if they feel more comfortable doing that. Um, but it absolutely is um, an issue that occurs within these fields because, like you mentioned earlier in, in this discussion, whether it's law enforcement or social workers, you're, you're most likely coming in contact with people in some of the worst moments of their life. Yeah. And when that's your day in and day out, that yeah. becomes hard because you're human as well. Yeah, again, I think we just ask an awful lot of, of our police and our first mm -hmm. responders. We ask and we expect an awful lot. And uh, we need to be, as a society, we need to be, if we have those expectations, if we have those, we probably need to be giving some, something back too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we don't like to pontificate too much on this, uh, on this show, but there it was. Um, as we're coming to actually to a close, um, we like to always give our guests, you know, what, what, uh, a little chance, what did we miss? Dante, what, uh, what did we not talk about that you think we should be bringing up? You know, I think that there was a lot of great topics discussed today, um, so I won't add to talks, but I would like to just kind of wrap it up with, within Rice County, we do have a great variety of resources that are available to people, and um, sometimes it's hard to know what they are or how to access them, and so here within Rice County, we do have, um, it's, it's a great resource that has been put together called the Mental Health Resource List for Rice County. If anyone, um, and, and that includes all of the licensed mental health and chemical health services and providers within Rice County, as well as how to get a hold of them, what services they offer, what they specialize in. Um, and that is accessed either by just going to Google and typing in Rice County Mental Health Resource List. It's a PDF that is regularly updated. Um, or if someone wanted to stop by any one of the Rice County um, offices, we can provide that as well. Cool. Chief, what do you think? What, what, what did we miss? What, uh, what should we be talking about? Well, this was a, a good discussion, and thank you for, for having it, um, for having it in this environment so that we can get some information out to the community. Um, but I would just say we are so thankful at the police department for this partnership that we have. Um, as you opened with, the police didn't ask to be the primary response mm -hmm. to community mental health and crisis calls, but no one else in society stepped up to do it, so we did. Um, well, now we're starting to see that change, and we are very thankful for that. I'm thankful for Dante stepping into her new role and for the work she does to promote the importance of this new program and in leading those community-based coordinators in their new roles embedded in our mm -hmm. community. All right. This has been a, another great an interesting conversation. We got to wrap it up here. Uh, Dante and Mark, Rich and I want to thank you for the conversation and insights this morning. 
Uh, yeah, I want to echo that. I, I really appreciate the both of you coming in and and and, and talking about this stuff. I, Dante, I've heard your name. I told you about this uh, off air. I've heard your name a million times. I'm finally. I'm so glad to finally meet you and thank you for everything you're doing. And Chief, you know I'm a big fan. I shouldn't say that on the radio, but I am. I'm a big fan. So, All right. Uh, that's going to conclude this week's edition of Public Policy This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. Each Friday morning from 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock. I am Rich Larson. My co-host today has been Joe Moravchik. Don't forget to join us next week when... Uh, a new host of Public Policy this week will make his debut, Steve Poskanzer, the President Emeritus of Carleton College, and who is now teaching poli-sci. Hmm. And he's going to have a conversation with Professor Alan Rosenstein of the University of Minnesota um, about upcoming cases in the Supreme Court. And folks, we pre-recorded this show yesterday. If you're even remotely interested in what's going on with the Supreme Court, you want to listen to this because these two guys have such amazing insight into how the court's working and, and, and uh, what they're dealing with right now. Please, uh, please come back next week, Friday at 10 a.m. for that show. The objective for public policy this week is to inspire important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities Staying away from the high-volume, rhetoric-filled conversations that are so commonplace today. Okay. Uh, thanks, for everyone, for joining us uh, for Public Policy this week. We are here again next Friday morning at 10 a.m. Have a fantastic Friday afternoon and a superb weekend. Take care. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.